Here we go, April the 5th, 2015. For you folks out there on the internet, this is our first fruit service. And, uh, well, uh, another first day of, I'm sorry, another feast day of first fruits has come, and today's that day. As you know, I hope you know, everyone should know that there is seven feast days that God has that He has designed. The first three are Passover, unleavened bread, and first fruits. Those are critical for you to know. Of course, He made sure that He, uh, he died on Passover. He made sure that he was buried in the period of unleavened bread, and then he made sure that he arose on first fruits, and this is first fruits. This is the third feast of God's seven feasts, and the feast day that he chose it's the feast day that he chose to resurrect himself. Uh, let me just really quickly read John because it's so important to know to, to know what I just said there. As, let me repeat it. He chose this day, the day that he designed. Of course, he designs all of time. And this is the day that he chose to resurrect himself. That's something that escapes us today. Jesus answered and said to them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. That's a powerful statement. Then the Jews said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days. But he was speaking of the temple of his body. Therefore, when he had risen from the dead, his disciples remembered that he said to them. And I'll add this, I will raise it up. He says it again in John 10. Verse 17 and 18, Therefore my Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down. I have power to take it again. I lay it down. I raise it up. I have the power. I'm God. Make no mistake. So before he created time, it was his decision, the Godhead decision, the triune Godhead. It was decided that this would be, there would be seven feast days, and this would be the feast day upon which the triune God would resurrect the second person of the Godhood. All three in concert. It's impossible for them not to be in concert. It's a triunity. That's a mystery that mankind cannot conceive. So don't feel bad. You ever walk into a church and somebody says, I'm going to solve the triunity of God? Throw your chair, run, grab something in the buffet on the way out the door. No one will solve it. No one can understand it. I'm not sure that we will ever have the capacity, even in a resurrected state, a sinless state, to understand the triune nature of God beyond a shallow level. Usually on this day, we focus on the fact of Christ's resurrection, the fact of his resurrection. He can't help but resurrect himself. He can't stop it, if you want to think of it that way. It's a human perspective. But now we usually focus on how his resurrection is now the foundations of our resurrections because we're all self-centered. The good news about him resurrecting himself is that lays the concrete, if you will. There's a concrete reference. Who is that for? But that lay, lays the foundation uh, for our resurrections. We resurrect. All those who believe and accept him, we resurrect because he is creator God in the flesh. And only God himself would be able, could accomplish all that salvation requires. Not the least of which is forgiving sin. 
He, Christ, is the first fruits of the resurrection. It's a title, again, that exceeds our understanding. We can only look with it, at it with awe. God's wisdom and God's love for us is something that we just accept with awe. But, having said that, this first fruits is different for me. April 5th, 2015, not the same as any other first fruits. I've done so many of these, I can't count them all now. First fruits slash Easter. Easter, as you know, is a Babylonian word. It's Ishtar. And it discourages me to see it out there, but I've gotten used to it and I've given up. But this is first fruits, and it's not the same as any of the others that I've had in my lifetime. You see, uh, let me just throw a couple of pieces of, of information to you that you may not even associate with this lecture. That's okay. Jesus Christ ate the Passover meal. As you know, you saw the painting, right? The Last Supper. He ate the Passover meal. And he was the Passover sacrifice the following day. As the lamb is sacrificed at 3 p.m. By the, by the high priest. The high priest takes a lamb that has been determined to be perfect without blemish. It has been inspected and found to be perfect. And he picks that lamb up at 3 o'clock, cuts its throat, and says it is finished. Jesus Christ is on the cross at 3 o'clock and says it is finished. He ate the Passover meal and he was the lamb the next day. And he's also the high priest. That says it is finished. He does all of that almost simultaneously, if you will. He's both the high priest and the Passover lamb of God. And he, at 3 p.m., says it is finished. Very important to know. And that, by the way, is the sixth saying of the seven sayings of Christ from the cross. John 19.30. Only God could have done that. Only God does do that. He designed it. He implemented it. He performed it. Every aspect of it perfectly discharged. It's a great proof of who Christ is. Who he really is. This is God. God alone. No other conclusion is possible. So what does this have to do with two Passovers? What does this have to do with first fruits? I just want you to remember that there's two Passover meals in every Passover. In the event that you're about to do something as a Jew that might defile you and you have to be cleaned of it and there's a cleansing provision and there's time involved, they have two. So Christ could eat the Passover and be the Passover. And there's no time today to explain why that there are two other than that shallow, perfunctory little explanation. Just know that because it's far more complicated than that. There's God ate the Passover and God was the Passover sacrifice. So if you got that so far, we're ready to keep going. And if you understand it, but you must know it, it becomes uh, it's becoming critical information, especially today. Because you see, this year we had a Passover agreement. That is not insignificant. I hope you're watching. I tell folks here, we'll start watching. Things are happening. We had a Passover agreement that is being heralded in some quarters. It is a Passover event. We have a Passover treaty. As you know, do you think it's a coincidence? 
Did the people that put together the Passover treaty, do they think it's a coincidence? Do they know? It's going to result in the Middle East, the Persian Gulf, exploding into war. With Israel now being in grave danger, the intended target. The nuclear non-proliferation treaty that the world so reveres is being shredded in the Middle East. So there's three phases to acquiring a nuclear weapon. You have to be able to manufacture it. Not easy. You have to be able to detonate it. It has to have a detonation system. Not easy. You have to be able to deliver that nuclear weapon. Accurately. Not easy. And so, if one country begins to develop that capability, what are the other countries going to do? I said this last week. The other countries are tertiary targets, uh, secondary and tertiary. Israel is the one that is going to find this atomic weapon delivered at them as soon as it's possible. But here's a little... I read ahead. See, I read ahead to see, did, did Israel get destroyed by Iran? It's not there. I had assumed that Iran read ahead too, but apparently not. But these other targets, they don't find that necessarily comforting. So we have Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabia is responding to Persia, to Iran's inevitable nuclear weapons by racing over to Pakistan with, with dump trucks full of money, boxcars. Their intention is to buy one because they can't manufacture it, and then buy a detonation system, and then buy a delivery system. They have no choice. Their survival will depend on it. Iran intends to sweep through and control all of the Middle East, right? Egypt is going to do likewise. They're going to seek a nuclear deterrence, as will Jordan, as will Turkey. Pakistan and North Korea are now open for business because of this Passover treaty. First Fruits 2015 is coming at a time of turmoil, and great evil is rising. And now add to that, the rabbis of Israel are reading the book of Esther in the synagogue. Esther typically is read at Purim. It's one of the two festivals that is not within the Mosaic legislation, the other being Hanukkah. Purim is derived from the Hebrew word for lot as in casting lots. So think dice if you want to think of it that way, or short straws, or whatever. It's casting lots. And this comes about in in, uh, Esther, the king of Persia, Xerxes. He decides to elevate to prime minister a man named Haman. Okay, so I have Xerxes. It's not easy for me to spell Xerxes. But I have Haman. So Xerxes decides that he's going to make this man Haman prime minister. And Haman has a plan to kill every Jew that he can. And decides that by casting lots, that he will do it on the 13th day of the 12th uh, Hebrew month, which is Adar, February, March, if you wish. The plot is discovered by Mordecai. Mordecai ultimately informs the queen Xerxes' queen, Queen Esther, who is his adopted daughter. By the way, you might recognize that that isn't her Hebrew name. It's a derivative of 
Sorry, put the H in the wrong place. Anyway, the plot ultimately, again, is discovered by Mordecai. and He informs Queen Esther, and she's his adopted daughter. And Mordecai is a Jew, and the adopted daughter of the, of the Jew became queen of Persia. Now she knows that there's a plan to kill every Jew, and she decides to devise a counter plan to stop Haman. The resulting conclusion is that Xerxes hangs Haman. You should read the story. Everyone is reading the story now. If you're not reading the story, ask yourself, how come when this Passover treaty came out, everybody started reading the book of Esther, normally read in February? Why aren't you reading it? Xerxes hangs Haman. Mordecai is given Haman's signet ring, and the Jews are saved in the festival of Purim commemorates this historical, actual, literally true event. So why are the rabbis in Israel and elsewhere referencing the story of Esther? Why are they reading Esther? And it's obvious, is it not, because of the typology. Most see, most commentators see Mordecai as uh, representing the Jewish people. So he's Israel. So now we're into other questions, if we eliminate him that quickly, as most do. Esther is the adopted daughter. She's adopted. And she becomes queen. Right? She becomes the bride of the king. This is the king. My pen's not working very well, is it? That's the best I can do. So, to repeat, Mordecai represents in the typological, uh, I would say the majority of the typological studies, he represents Israel. Even though they're actually literally true people that live, God used their lives to give you a prophecy. Give us a prophecy. Esther, adopted daughter, becomes the bride of the king. Haman is the most wicked, the most evil. This is a pure evil man intent on annihilating, on extinguishing the Jewish nation, the Jewish people. And obviously, the typological element is obvious. This is obvious obviousness, isn't it? By the way, as an aside, where else in Scripture do I have a very evil man who was intent on killing all the Jews hung I do have another one. Who is he? You can do this. This is participatory. Where else in Scripture do I have another man incredibly evil and incredibly powerful, extraordinarily powerful man who intends to kill every single Jew that he can? Also hanged. Well, the answer is Judas. Understanding the pure evil that is Judas. Thank you, sir. It's probably too late. I won't use the board anymore. I have to hurry before the buffet gets cold. Understanding the pure evil that is Judas and therefore discerning his true motives and ultimate plan. Uh, Remember who's inside of him when he's hung. Who is inside of him when he initiates his plan? He has Satan himself, the only man in all of history 
that Satan has entered, the only one, making him incredibly evil, incredibly powerful, unimaginably. So what was his motive? I'm suggesting to you that the motive of Jesus and the motive of Haman are identical. Getting a grasp on that is important. Make an effort to connect Judas and Haman. Anyway, who do you suppose the rabbis are assigning these people to today? Because they're doing it. They're saying Esther represents somebody today. Mordecai represents somebody today. Haman represents somebody today. Xerxes as well. Who are they assigning it to? Why are they reading it in the synagogue? It's in the papers. This Passover nuclear weapon giveaway to Iran. We have a nuclear weapon giveaway program for the Iranians. And they unequivocally declared that they will destroy Israel. In fact, they said this. The destruction of Israel is not negotiable. What did they mean? They meant that you give us weapons and we're going to kill the Jews. And it isn't negotiable. We're not stuttering. Iran is an apocalyptic nation. By that I mean they yearn for Israel's extinction. All the Jews killed, irrespective of the consequences to Iran. Is Iran willing to deploy and deliver and detonate a nuclear weapon in Israel, knowing that it will be annihilated as well? Are they willing to do it? Absolutely they are. It's what they say they're going to do. They willingly, without hesitation, intend to sacrifice themselves and their entire nation to kill the Jews. A horrific war at all costs in the hope that Allah will somehow reward them. They're in for a very sad day because we're going to find out this is not politically correct. It's going to get me in trouble. There is no Allah. There is none. So again, with that as our foundation, our framework, that's an inside joke, who is facilitating Iran's irrational fatalism? Some see Iran as a proxy of Russia, but who is facilitating this Passover treaty? Who is Haman? Who is utilizing Iran's virulence, their poisonous, bitter zealotry? Who's using Iran? Who's manipulating them? Many commentators uh, see the true literal events of the book of Esther as illustrating the unseen war of Satan and God. They call it a chess match, if you will. Uh, That's not accurate because God is omniscient. He's also the creator of time. He's outside of time. He can see your moves over here. You haven't made them yet. You're inside of time. He has an advantage being omniscient. So Satan can't win. It's not a chess match. As Satan knows that this is not something he can prevail. He's not stupid. It's impossible for him to win and Satan knows it. Nonetheless, Satan has a motive. Satan has a plan. It's apparent. His plan incorporates the fact that God is omniscient and that God is omnipotent and God is omnipresent and God is omnibenevolent. What I mean by omnibenevolence is that God is always good, cannot be anything but good. If you ever read the Bible and you come to a place where you think God is not good, you are what? What's the word we want? Wrong. That's right. You're wrong. Don't take it personal. We're all wrong most of the time. 
joint, sit next to somebody else who's wrong. But at least don't be wrong here. Find out why you're wrong. Because God is omnibenevolent. He cannot be evil. He's not the source of evil. So, Satan understands that, and he incorporates God's characteristics in his plan. So then who has succumbed to the lie here? Who is using Iran? Who is the Haman of today? And do they know that they are Haman? I can tell you this, Israel believes that they know that they're Haman. They know that the people who are pretending to, or who are in the role of Haman know that they're Haman in the role. That's why they're preaching Esther. Israel believes they know. They know that they know that Israel believes that they know. Israel knows that they know that Israel believes that they know. So here we are, first fruit 2015. Ezekiel 38 is almost here. It's almost here. It's on the threshold. The latter days of the age of the Gentiles are almost, they're just so close it's stunning. We could see horrific total war in the Middle East. What's today? Sunday? Monday. It could explode on Monday. There's one estimate that Iran could launch a nuclear weapon within three weeks. So what are we going to do about that? What can we do? Well, we can choose. We can choose Haman or Esther. Genesis 12.3, Galatians 3.8. God will bless those who bless Israel and curse those who curse Israel, who hate Israel. Jesus Christ chose this third feast day, first fruits, and he hid inside first fruits, the feast day of first fruits, many great truths. Foremost is that Christ, God, Jesus God, he calls himself Jesus God, Acts 2.32. There's no hyphen there, it's all one word. Christ raised himself up on first fruits so that we could be certain that we who believe what he says about himself would be resurrected to the blessing. The blessing is reconciliation, eternal life, as God defines life. He, Christ says, I am the I am. I am the one who resurrects. And by the way, when he says that, it's intentionally singular. There is no one else who resurrects. There is no one else who brings us out of death into life. He says, I am the one who resurrects. I am the life. There's only one life, one source of life. He's it. There is no other life. There is no other possibility of life except this one source. He is the one life. No other life but me, he says. Then he asks this, do you believe me? And I'm saying that Choose yes. Accept his offer of eternal life. Or choose no. And reject his offer, his blood, his, his offer of eternal life. Either way, you will be eventually resurrected. There is no cessation of existence. You will be resurrected. The order is all that is at stake. The destination or the destiny is at stake. So where in the order is your resurrection? That becomes important for you to know. Resurrected within the truth, in the, within the order of first fruits. 
1 Corinthians 15, 23 through 28. Each one in his own order. He's talking about the resurrection. There is an order to it. Each one in his own order. Christ the first fruits. Afterwards, those who are Christ's at his coming. So you are in the first fruits order. Thus the question, will you rise in the first fruits resurrection? Will you arise to the blessing of life? Or will you rise to your trial? To judgment. Blessing or curse? Rise to the second death. The real death. Physical death isn't the real death. The real death comes at the throne of Christ. Revelation 20, 13 through 15. And our time is short. Short. I want you to just watch the news. Read the papers. Start paying attention to what's happening. It might happen so fast. And when it does, don't be the ones that don't know. Be somebody that knows.